Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Nicole Polk, who is the CEO and founder of Siren Biotechnology. And prior to that, she was an assistant professor at UC San Francisco. We're going to talk today about gene therapy and AAVs in particular, but we're also going to talk about Nicole's recent transition from academia into industry, what are the differences between those worlds, and what is real and imagined in the mind of the academic or industry person. I think we're also going to talk about maybe a little bit of the futuristic applications of gene editing and what we might be able to expect in the next decade or two. So Nicole, without further ado, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining me. Yeah, really excited to be here. So what sparked your research interests initially? Everybody gets into this field in a slightly different way. How did you find your way? Uh, obviously, gene therapy has burst onto the scene in the last decade or so, but what sparked your interest in the first place? It was not a foretold destiny that I had knew that I knew about and had planned for. It was it was very practical. When I was in undergrad, I was at a very small like division two school. And although I had a full ride for sports, for volleyball, I did not have, I still needed a little bit more money to, to kind of pay rent and, and, and make a car payment. So I was like, oh, I need to do research in order to make money. And there were two labs in my entire campus. This was at a small school in, in central Washington. And there were two labs on the entire campus that had enough money to be able to afford to pay someone to do research. Uh, one of them was an atmospheric nanochemistry lab of which I knew nothing about, right? I was a medical microbiology <laughs> major in undergrad. And, but this like atmospheric nanochemistry lab that like studied the chemistry that happens at the, the ocean atmosphere interface, like in that yeah. first of the ocean. And I was like, probably some cool microbes there. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's see what's going on. And that was that lab. Like I was able to do a, a little research project and they paid me money. And I was just like, oh, this research stuff is kind of cool. Uh, and then decided maybe I would go get a PhD, but in in my world and in, in medical kind of microbiology and virology, and so went and got PhD at, at OHSU. I only picked that. I followed a boyfriend there because that's where he got into dental school, and I was like, oh, this seems like a good school. I could do my PhD here, and still had no like grand visions. Like I was definitely going to do gene therapy. This is the plan. This is the vision. It just happened to be in that lab that. That there were some some senior postdocs who were working on on viral gene therapy, and I was like, "Oh, this stuff's kind of cool." And then they left and and went and started their faculty positions, but some of their projects kind of got left behind and didn't get finished before they they managed to get their faculty position. And so I kind of inherited those and and kind of got off to the races, and still wasn't necessarily like this is my destiny. But as often happens in science, when the science works, oh, you like it. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, if if folks remember kind of the history in, in the gene therapy space, there was a very big event that happened, you know, back in back in the late 90s, where we had a, a fatality from from an adenovirus trial. This is the Jesse Gelsinger fatality that had occurred. And following that death and that investigation of, of Jim Wilson at UPenn, the, the NIH shut down all funding, not only grants, clinical trials, everything. They put a freeze on everything. And so the, the field truly stopped. Right. <laughs> it stopped in time. There was no funding. There was no way to get anything. It was just like a death sentence to work on anything in that space. And that was when I was doing my PhD. And so there were a few folks kind of using viruses just to, to do things in the lab, like to you know use it to express GFP or something, but not doing anything necessarily therapeutically. Yeah. And I was like, this stuff seems so promising. This stuff seems so amazing. This stuff seems so cool. And my PI, bless his heart, uh, Scrappy, was just like, you know, very German man. He's like, do not go into this. <laughs> like, this is, this it's is. It's dead. It's, it's winter. Aaron. This is a yeah. dead end. I cannot give you any money for this. 
you know, we, we can't get an age funds. And I was like, but what if I got some money? He's like, where are you going to get money? You're a grad student. Where are you going to get, where are you going to get money? And I was just yeah. like, well, what if I got some? And he's like, sure. Don't worry about it. I'm going to get it. Money, mysterious money. Sure. Little grad student child. Sure. If you can get some money, I'll let you play with viruses in the corner. Right. And so I had my marching orders and I went out and became the like number one most like scholarship, fellowship and grant running grad students, I think still today ever, but at least at that time that had ever happened at OHSU and brought in all of this money. And he was just like, where, where was it coming from? Philanthropists or, or nonprofits or where? You name it. Internal funds from within the university from local, like whatever, Kiwanis clubs, (laughs) you know, science things, small grants from like the NSF that were, that were meant for graduate students and these types of things. I mean, I just, I got it from everywhere. And so finally, he was like, fine, go play with viruses in the corner, you fool. And because there was no one in the field, I mean, no one in the field, there was all this fundamental work to be done that was kind of, I don't want to say easy, but like, like the obvious fundamentals, the background, the foundation. And so I just got to work. And because there was no competition, I mean, I just started publishing like crazy. We got six papers in three years, which is a pretty remarkable PhD. And then start towards the end, he was like, there might be something to this. <laughs> even though, even though I don't care about these viruses, like I sure do like publications. And so slowly I started winning him over and winning the lab over. And then about the time I finished my PhD was right at that moment when you started to see some of the, the companies uh, that had already been established prior to the whole like Jesse Gelsing, you know, like the solid bios and Voyagers and Sparks spark therapeutics and these types of companies, you were just starting to see some positive data from some of their like phase one trials that they were trying to do with a different virus, A, B, not adenovirus. And so there was just starting to be this, this glimmer of hope that gene therapy might be picking back up and, and VCs starting, started to be interested and started paying more attention and gene therapy companies were going to like JPM and these types of things. And so I went and did my, my postdoc at Stanford. Um, and but about two to three years into my postdoc was just when like gene therapy hit. That's when yeah. everybody probably heard the word gene therapy for the first time that wasn't in the space. It just felt like you could hear it everywhere. It was in like the five o'clock news. It, all of a sudden, the big gene therapy meeting, so the American Society for Gene and Cell Therapy, went from being like 200 of us that would sit around in like jeans, eating pizza out of a box and, you know, cracking beers in like basically a parking lot. <laughs> so now all of a sudden, the very next year, there's like, 2,000 of us, and then 3,000, and then 4,000, and like, and then everyone's wearing suits. And now we're not eating pizza out of boxes anymore. We're in like these, you know, you know, big presidential symposia and it's starting to feel more like a medical meeting. And just all of a sudden the field just like came back like lightning, but there was nobody above us. Right. There were no assistant professors or associate professors, in some cases, even tenured professors. So there was no one above us. So the people who were finishing their postdocs in gene therapy at about the time I was, there was like three or four of us. And everyone knows the three or four of us because we kind of got to like step into this field that didn't kind of exist anymore where you needed, right? You need professors to, you know, review grants and be the KOL, the quote for the, you know, the press story and all of these types of things and found the companies. And so the four or five of us really got an outsized impact in the field simply because there was nobody above us because everyone had pivoted to like genomics or some other nearby field so that they could keep their labs alive and get yeah. NIH funds. And so 
it wasn't necessarily planned that I was going to go into gene therapy. It just kind of, it just kind of happened. And the it timing- reminds me a little bit of what maybe is happening right now with AI and machine learning. It's been through a couple of winters. And when these funding winters or progress winters happen, you do kind of get a generational shift where everybody in the field with a few exceptions are very early in their career. That's super interesting. That uh, makes a lot of sense. So you you did some work, uh, academic work. You ran your own group for a little while. Then you made the decision to start a company, I think based on some of the work you were doing in the group that you spun out. You're in stealth for a little while. You're out of stealth now. And I think your website's great. It's very, it's very good at explaining what you do, which is pretty rare amongst biotech websites, actually. But I'd love to hear it's from a you. Great obviously, here on that website, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it is it is hard to explain cutting edge science sometimes. So it, it is a it is a natural thing. But maybe you could talk a little bit about what your research was focused on, and then a little bit of that transition into starting the company. Yeah. So my lab was fairly unique in academia. So most academic gene therapists now, now that the field does exist and it is back, they're really focused on a disease, a tissue, a pathway that they're really interested in. And they're using gene therapy as one of the kind of arrows in their quiver to, to go after that particular disease. Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, hemophilia, these types of things, or they're really interested in tissue. We work on liver gene therapy and we're trying to optimize capsids and promoters and, and tools and technologies for liver. And we were kind of where we, we were a gene therapy lab that did not work on gene therapies. So the rule was we couldn't work on particular diseases, pathways, organs, species. We wanted to work on the platform itself and kind of operate at 30,000 feet in the clouds and try to develop enabling technologies that would make any AAV gene therapy, regardless of what you wanted to use it for, kind of cheaper, easier, and faster. And so we would work on everything from novel capsids to novel promoters and regulatory elements to new synthetic circuits and ways to kind of link and string things together in order to express things in, in new, unique, creative ways in the body to new ways of manufacturing the virus, to new ways of purifying it, to new ways of dosing it and delivering it, new ways of detecting it and applying kind of big omics, genomics, epigenomics, proteomics, you name the omics, we were interested in it, but kind of applying those kind of big omics to the fundamental biology of the virus to see if there was something we could uncover that we could leverage to use in some interesting way yep. um, to policy and access issues. Like all of those things would have kind of fallen into our purview. And one of the biggest questions that we kind of whiteboarded out in my lab when we were first starting was, what are the biggest gnarliest problems that are going to have to get solved from within academia because they're way too long and they're way too high risk you know, no, no startup or no big yeah. pharma is going to go after these. And so we were kind of whiteboarding out, like, what are these big challenges? We kept coming back to the fact that every AAV gene therapy on the planet is bespoke and personalized for a single indication, right? So you can't treat a little boy with hemophilia B with a virus you made for a little girl with spinal muscular atrophy, obviously, right? The payloads are different because we're going after these monogenic Mendelian disorders. And and sorry, just to linger on that, why why is that? Is it because the virus is engineered with the payload kind of from yeah. from the get go? Yeah. From the get go, you pick your payload, and that payload is obviously only able to treat because we've only ever treated monogenic disorders. That payload is linked to the disease. It is the gene you are missing. Either you're missing that gene, or you have a mutation in it such that it's not expressing, and you need that in order to have the functional effects. And so, every single lab in academia, every startup, every big pharma is doing what's called gene transfer gene therapy, where they are just expressing the protein that you are missing, that either is gone or that you have a mutation in, and they're going to basically provide you with an additional copy and using a virus as a delivery tool. So the challenge there is that it gets really hard to scale this in the sense that if you choose, I'm going to specialize 
skeletal muscle gene therapy. I'm a company. Yeah. And we're only going to do skeletal muscle because we're going to be specialists because that's going to help us in some way because we don't have 10 different tissues we're going after. We're only going to do skeletal muscle. We're going to have a Pompeii program and a Duchenne's program and a limb muscle girdle program, all skeletal muscle disorders. Those programs, because they cost so much money, they often start apart in time by two to three years. And it's usually like, you'll go out and do a whole fundraise. You'll raise $250 million to bring in either to develop in-house or to in-license from somebody else, a new skeletal muscle program. That new program is going to need a whole new team, $250 million. It's, you know, it's three years since your last program. Yep. Big decision. That, yeah. There's, well, it also means that there's a new best thing. So since your last program, there's a new best captain right, and a new right. best promoter and a new best way to design your construct and a new best manufacturing method and a new best CDMO partner and a new best, you know, purification strategy and a new best way to do your fill finish and a new everything. Yeah. And obviously you want to use the latest and greatest stuff. So you're going to switch into all the new stuff. So even though you've chosen to specialize in skeletal muscle, you don't get to leverage almost any of the learnings from your first program into your second program so that your second program is going to be faster in the clindev time or cheaper in terms of the capital needs that you need to go out and raise. There's really no difference. So despite the fact that you specialize, you don't get to leverage any of those learnings across programs. And so every single AVG and therapy program is like 10 to 15 years. And, you know, depending on the numbers, you know, one to $2 billion a program. I was just like, this doesn't scale. How are we going to go after these 8,000 rare Mendelian yeah. monogenic disorders, much less more common things, you know, diabetes, heart failure, cancer, you know, more common things. If we can't get this stuff to scale, right? You want to have your first program that like teaches you something that helps your next program be twice as fast and, you know, twice as cheap. Yeah. And so we saw that as the fundamental challenge. And so that was one of the projects that we wrote it out. We're like, how could we address this? How could we go after that issue directly? And the idea that we came up with was maybe if you had a universal gene therapy where all the component parts didn't change across each program, like you had one virus, but that could be used to treat two things or 200 things or 2000 things. And the caps that stayed the same and the promoter and the payload and the way you manufacture it, the way you prepare all these things. If every one of the component parts stayed the same, then you could make it once and use it 10 ways to Sunday. And now your first program will cost just as much as anybody else's gene therapy program. But your second program should be just lightning faster, way cheaper, much easier and better every single time because now you can leverage information across the trials and these types of things. And so we sought out to kind of get at that concept and wanted to ask that really audacious question, like what could a payload be that would allow you to treat more than one disease so that you could make a universal gene therapy? And so we took kind of a bioinformatic approach to that and started thinking through like, okay, let's just step away from what we know, which is like the rare Mendelian genetic space, and just think more broadly, what are payloads that we could deliver that could do something of interest therapeutically? They alter cell states, cell behavior, cell signaling, cell interactions in some kind of meaningful way, either alone or together in some kind of fun circuit. And so we got very excited about things like transcription factors and cytokines and chaperones and degraders and all types of things kind of in those veins. And then decided that we would do the very academic thing. And rather than make one or two of them, we were like, let's just make them all. Yeah. Let's make libraries of just like thousands of these. And then start testing these basically in different use cases. And although I don't believe in destiny, I do believe in luck. And as luck would have it, right, as we were kind of thinking about this concept, I got a call 
from a faculty member and the department chair of my department saying, hey, the cancer center just pinged us and said they just received a very large philanthropic grant from, from one of their regular donors to start basically like precision kind of cancer initiative over in the cancer center. And one of the remits of the gift was that they wanted to give money to folks at UCSF who had never worked in cancer before. Oh, interesting. Try to test their thing, whatever that meant, whatever that was, device, medicine, doesn't matter, to come and test it in a cancer setting and see if we can use this money to try to like bring more people into the cancer space to test your whatever, your antifungal drug, your viral gene therapy, your interesting medical device that does cool X thing, whatever, and to come test those in cancer. And all you had to do was submit, I'm not even exaggerating, a one page (laughs) description of what you would use the money for. And so I submitted a little one page grant about how we would use, use our kind of universal gene therapy viral libraries to see if any of those might work in a cancer setting. We had a cytokine library included in that, which, you know, kind of made sense that that could work potentially in a cancer setting, even though there has never been an AAV gene therapy in oncology ever. It's just like, it's like oil and water. It's two worlds that don't talk right? It's not an oncolytic virus. It doesn't lyse its host cell. It doesn't integrate. It doesn't make copies of itself. It doesn't do any of the things we normally think of, of viruses that are in the cancer world. And so it's just, it's just, it was kind of crazy to think that like you could use an A in an oncology setting. And we happened to be one of the six labs that got chosen. It was like us and Jennifer Doudna, like, you know, literal, you know, beacon, beacon in the stars and a few other labs. That got chosen and and received a very large you know philanthropic gift to to try this very high risk thing, and that was the funds. We actually never wrote an NIH grant for the for the work we did on that project. It was entirely philanthropic from first that grant and then some additional follow on funds from from UCSF from this program called the Catalyst, which is to give more funds for really exciting projects that might have startup potential. And and fast forward you know four years and the project really worked. <laughs> Yes. And it worked so well that our clinical colleagues, so as part of that initiative, all of the like PhD professors that got funded were, were asked once a year to basically prevent, present in front of tumor board, which for folks who aren't familiar or who aren't familiar, you know, once a week, all of the oncologists at your hospital will meet and they'll talk about the patients that got diagnosed this week and they'll go over all of their, their charts and their numbers and their blood work and their imaging and they'll come up with and they'll have done sequencing on the tumors and these types yeah. of things. And they'll come up with what should be the treatment regimen plan for this patient based off, you know, their unique presentation. And it's, it's a really beautiful process. And our, our MD colleagues from over at the hospital took a week off. I mean, they still did their patient tumor board, but they did an extra tumor board with us where they heard all of us present our data with the hope that perhaps they would have some insights that could help us make this more clinically relevant and these types yeah. of things. And I was presenting our data at tumor board. Uh, and this happened to be in, in front of the tumor board at the Brain Tumor Center because we were working, we happened to be working on a, a, a brain cancer particular project at, at that moment. And some of the, you know, these are neuro-oncologists and neurosurgeons who bless, but, you know, they got, they got no patience. <laughs> <laughs> you need to get to the point. You know, they yeah. like, get to the point. We got to go. We got people with brain We've cancer. Got bra- here. We got brains to say. We got, we got brains to go, to go fix. And I mean, they're just phenomenal humans. And I remember presenting to all these neurosurgeons and neuro-oncologists and, and one of them politely interrupted me during my talk and was just like, I've seen enough. And I'm like, I thought I had done something wrong. Yeah, like, in a good oh, way or a bad way? Chair, oh, my department chair is going to kill me. He ain't never going to let me talk in front of these, <laughs> front of these groups again. Oh my goodness. He was just like, this is the best data I've ever seen. Like you have to go start a startup. 
please go get real money and start working on this. Like we're done here. And then just like hung up the Zoom with like 150 people on it. <laughs> just hung up the Zoom. I was like, okay, I guess we're going to go start a startup. And so that was like the first inkling of like, should this be a startup? Could this be a startup? Should I run this startup? And so that kind of planted the seed of, you know, maybe this, maybe this could, should be a startup, but then the classic decision that happens in academia is, should we just spin this out? But then I stay here as a professor and just, I'm, I'm on the SAB or should I leave and go do this? And so kind of, you know, going through that angsty decision was, was, was a whole experience. <laughs> yeah. Talk, talk me through that decision. Cause it's not an easy one to leave an academic world not. where you had many years of success and could probably see many years ahead of you. And, and I, I don't know how you approach this decision, but you, you probably figured out at some point that it's not a one-way door and you could go back if you wanted to in the future, but it, it's, it's sometimes hard to see that at the time, right? Yeah. How did you, how did you approach that to say, do I, do I make this jump and I give up the lab and the yeah. the idea that I had in my brain for what I would be doing in 10 years and go do something different? So what was really interesting for me that made the decision actually pretty easy was the fact that this happened, this all happened at the peak of COVID. Remember right. that first year of COVID where like you were still like Lysol wiping, like your, yes. your grocery you know, bags, your yeah. groceries <laughs> and stuff when we had no idea what was going on and all these types of things and you were still at home, right? You yeah. couldn't go back to work yet. At least in academia, we couldn't because we were not considered essential workers. So even though Stanford, which was a private university, right? It's 20 minutes south of here. They were already back. I mean, they were in masks, six feet, the whole thing. But we were, we were a, a public institution at UCSF. And so, you know, we were held to more strict, more strict kind of state legislative mandated rules and these types of things. So for a good nine months, Nine months. Yeah, we were kept home, and we are one hundred percent wet lab. You know, arms right. in the hood. You know, doing the things. Yes, all the stuff. So this was just this was just impossible. You know, there's only so much data, old data you can reanalyze, and you know, get that one last paper out and write a review and write a grant. There's only so yeah. much that you can do when you're a wet lab. Like you, you need, need to be at the you event. need to be in the lab. Yeah, you need to be in the lab, and so. I started asking around like my department chair and some others. And I'm like, there has to be a way. Like I am a professor of virology. Yeah. <laughs> like, Let me get in that building. <laughs> 365 days a year. We are wearing gowns and masks and gloves and booties and all the things. Like we know what we're doing. I've worked with far more dangerous pathogens than, than coronavirus, which is only BSL-2. It's not even two plus. It's just like, <laughs> like this is not an issue. Like let us come back. And I got my first decision point that was actually, I think, really pivotal. And I got told, if you work on coronavirus, we'll let you come back. Right. But if you don't work on coronavirus, we can't let you come back because we just like, we can't, you know, we can't break the, the state rules, these types of things. You know, when we get the okay that you can start coming back, you can. The only exception to that is if you're going to come back and work on coronavirus, you know, like whatever, a vaccine, a treatment to something. Yeah. And so I had a decision to make because like, I definitely had all of the wherewithal to know how to do that as a virologist. And I made the strategic decision to say, no, I would not come back and pivot my lab to temporarily work on coronavirus. A, because honestly, I just wasn't interested in it. And B, I knew my career would never recover. Because like statistically, I'm not going to make the vaccine that saves the yeah. world, yeah. right? So like, I'm not going to become a coronavirus lab. I will have just pivoted for two years or something. Right. Lost uh, momentum and on everything else. 
yeah. have lost momentum on everything. And so I made a very strategic decision to say no. And they're like, okay, perfectly fine, but we can't let you come back. And I was like, but everyone out in industry is an essential worker and they're allowed to go in and work. And they're like, well, yeah, if you had a startup. And I was like, there we go. Yeah. If I had a startup. Yeah. Okay. And they're like, I mean, but you don't have a startup. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, what if I did? Can incorporate in the state of California pretty quickly. <laughs> like, what if I had a startup? Could could I work? And they're like, well, not on campus, but like if you've got space somewhere yeah. off of campus, like as a real startup, like you go and you get space and like an incubator, you go raise VC dollars, you get incorporated, like you have to do the whole thing. You can't fake it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but like assume I have a startup and I go back to work. And they're like, I mean, yeah, sure. We'll have to figure out the IP. All of that will be, you know, messy and all this stuff. But like, theoretically, yes, you could go back to work immediately because now you're an essential worker. And I was just like, decision. <laughs> my marketing right. orders. And so then I just hustled. And, you know, I had done diligence for years for you name a VC firm. If they've ever invested in the AAB gene therapy space, I was probably the KOL, the diligence, yo deck. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> if it was a financing, if it was an analyzing thing, an out licensing, a hire of a CSO, if it was a, an M&A, no matter what it was, I probably was the one who diligence your deck. So I know a lot of VCs, which is not normally something that most academics yes. can say, unless they're exceptionally famous and tenured and you're George Church or something, then like, yeah, George, George and Bob Langer know a few folks, but most other folks don't, uh, or maybe they know one. I knew, I knew an outsized amount. So I just kind of pinged everybody and said, hey, if I put something together, would you look at it? And a couple of them who, who I'd known for a very long time were just like, I don't care what it is. If you are going to quit your job to go do it, I'm in. Like, I'll put in a million. I'll put in a million. I'll put in a million. And so very quickly, we managed to cobble together like a decent sized little seed. It was six million. It was enough to go out and be dangerous and, you know, buy some instruments and get started. And there was an incubator literally immediately across the street from my lab here at, at UCSF in Mission Bay that was run by Bayer at the time, yep. Bayer Pharma. And in order to get into the incubator, you had to like work on something that Bayer might be interested in potentially, you know, acquiring a decade from now. And yes. they're very interested in AV gene therapy. And I knew all those folks I had consulted for Bayer for years. So I was just like, hey, do you have any space? And they're like, we have one space that just opened up. Do you want it? Uh, and so I managed to get space in the incubator, had $6 million, got incorporated and like went back to my department. I'm like, okay, I have a startup. And they're like, we just talked like three weeks ago. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah but I haven't started now. <laughs> do you think, what, what do you think would have gone differently if COVID hadn't been happening? Do you think you would have made the same decision or would you have gone a different no, route? I really don't. I feel yeah. like I would love to say yes. I definitely would have. And the pull was so strong and it would have happened. Maybe it just would have been a little slower, but I, I genuinely don't know the answer. It was one of those, it was one of those moments that was so infuriating because someone else was telling me you can't do something that I knew I wanted to do and could do, which is just something it's like, I want to come to work. Yes. <laughs> I want to come to work. I want to come to work and do science. Someone and someone, you know, without a scientific backing telling me, no, you can't. Right. I'm not, you know, placing blame or something on the chancellors and provosts and stuff like they were taking orders from this, you know, the state of California. So their hands were tied, but that, that just really bothered me. And so I don't know if I would have been as gung ho had it not been for this really unique opportunity of basically getting told no in the peak yes. of COVID and being like, okay, how else could I just get this done? So, so yeah, I don't know. I don't 
<laughs> yeah, interesting. So, I so you seen. maybe I'd go back and try to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we will never know. I mean, it, that's the thing. You make the decision, you keep moving. Yeah. But you decided to pursue this oncology application. So maybe yeah. you could talk a little bit about the vectorization of cytokines. What 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 did you hit on that you decided that you could do so you could deliver not just to one particular gene to solve a particular rare disease, as you mentioned earlier, but a broader class of cytokines to induce, I guess, an, an, an immunotherapy-like response. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, because I, I thought it was, uh, like I said earlier, explained very clearly on your website, which is hard to do with, with cutting-edge <laughs> science. So when we got excited about the cytokine library, we weren't necessarily thinking of pointing that ship at oncology. We were just excited about cytokines because they're these very pleiotropic agents that yeah. your body makes. They do many, many things. They signal to many different cell types and, and trigger all kinds of signaling cascades and pathways. Almost every cell in your body responds to, to different cytokines, both in utero, when you're, when you're a child, as an adult, right? So it has kind of all of the characteristics and, and flavors of things that we're interested in as like these broad agents that can modulate a variety of different kind of cell states and behaviors and signaling patterns and these types of things. So we got excited about cytokines just kind of broadly. And then once we had made those libraries and got that opportunity after that philanthropic gift to start testing them in a cancer setting, we realized we had kind of fell into a really interesting, a really interesting use case, which is basically there's been cytokine immunotherapies where they take the cytokine, the protein itself, they take these cytokines and they deliver them to patients, right? This is companies like Nectar and stuff doing like, you know, pegylated interleukin, you know, you name it, IL-2, IL-12, IL-18, you know, you name it. So that's been a field for like the better part of a decade. And the challenge in the cytokine field is that, remember, cytokines are among the most potent things your body makes, right? Anytime you've had that big fever, right? After, say, you got your COVID booster. Remember that second one you got? And it just walloped you. Yeah. It, that was a cytokine response. That was that wallop that you felt, right? So they're very, very strong. They're very, very potent but they're very, very short-lived. And that's on purpose. You evolve to have them be very short-lived. You want this big wall up to take down whatever it is, usually you know, a bacterial or a viral infection, right? That's how your body normally uses these in kind of the, the main use case, but they have a million other uses as well. But they have a really short half-life. It can literally be single to double-digit minutes. So they come on really hot, really strong, really heavy, and then they go away really, really fast. And so the challenge in like the medicinal chemistry side of the cytokine space for the last decade has been, how can we extend the half-life? So they've been trying to shield these things with some kind of phospholipid bilayer or something like a peg, pegylation, coming up with a peptide chemistry to shield it with, or in some cases, even a metal chemistry to shield it with, or they'll fuse it to a longer lived protein, or they'll alter the structure function in some way to make it so that it can't be tagged for ubiquitination to get degraded or you name it, tons of ideas to try to extend the half-life of these fantastic anti-cancer medicines, right? Not only are they anti-infectives, they're the way every single one of us listening to this podcast gets rid of cancer. You've had a tumor every single day of your life. Every single day of your life, you've had a tumor, but your body basically can sense and find and destroy those based off of little cytokine signals that not only that tumor cell, but the cells around it Send out to the local environment. Your immune cells can detect those cytokine gradient signals. They hone in, they come in, they do a little investigation, and they're like, Yeah, something's up with that cell. I'm like that cell. And then they'll chew it up. They'll chew it up while it's still a single cell, and you don't don't have it grow into a large tumor. So this is the the background kind of basal cancer immunosurveillance that your body is doing 
every single day. So your body naturally fights cancer with cytokines, which is why the field of cytokine immunotherapy was like, let's just make these in mass and give these to people. The challenge was the half-life. And even though many of them did succeed in extending the half-life from maybe 22 minutes to 73 minutes, still not enough to go after a baseball-sized tumor. So we realized that by vectorizing these in non-oncolytic viruses that are safe, that don't integrate, that don't replicate, that have no ability to exit and enter a new cell that can kind of have all of these built-in safety features, there's the way we deliver genes for normal gene transfer gene therapy. They're also basically allowing us to do a half-life extension play. Um, So even though we have not changed the half-life of any of the cytokines in our libraries, they're the exact same crummy half-lives that they were, but we're just going to keep making copies of them from the cDNAs. And then then you'll basically get this cessation of expression when the tumor dies because these viruses don't survive cytokinesis or apoptosis events. And so as soon as the tumor cell host dies, the virus dies with it. So you have this natural built-in kill switch that you can leverage. And so we got really excited about that. The data bore that out and, and, and the, rest, the rest is history. Yeah, interesting. And I guess this point you made about AAVs not being oncolytic, not integrating into the genome is a really important one. Because if you think about one of the challenges with gene editing, obviously, which this isn't, but one of the challenges there is if we think about common diseases, the company Verve was in the news recently. I love their approach to do a single shot lifetime reduction of LDL. But the the natural criticism of that, which is fair, is, okay, what are the long-term impacts of some kind of gene editing approach, especially for common disease? But it sounds like you don't have that concern with something exactly. like AAV. Yeah. Which was why, and like, that's very different from the oncolytic space. Like there are many viruses, there's a whole field of oncolytic viral gene therapy for cancer, adenoviruses, lentiviruses, measles, polio, all of these viruses, which are all based off known human pathogens yeah. that we vaccinate against, right? So you have, to, you have to be faster than your immune system because when you put one of those viruses in your body to go after cancer, it's a race. Can it get rid of the cancer faster than your immune system can silence and methylate that genome? Because it will recognize it as a foreign pathogenic virus, um, but it doesn't do that with AAV. It doesn't it can recognize it as foreign, but it doesn't methylate and silence its genome, I think, because it can just kind of, it's not pathogenic, it's not pampy enough that, that your immune system will come in and methylate it, which is why we use it to do gene transfer gene therapy, because you can get lifelong steady expression from these things because they're not silenced. And so that's a big difference between the oncolytic viral space and what's now. I mean, right now it's only us. We are the world's only AAV gene therapy and oncology. We're calling ourselves immunogene therapies. Uh, rather than, you know, oncolytic viral therapies. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be some some fast follows. But for the hot yeah. moment, we're the only ones. <laughs> Amazing. And so what compound question here, what does 2024 and beyond look like for you? What does the future look like? But also 2023, we were talking before we hit record and uh, we agreed that 2023 was a challenging year for biotechs. Lots of biotechs struggled to raise funding. We could see those that were public lost a lot of their value. It's maybe starting to come back a little bit, but it's a very, very challenging time to to be doing something new and innovative. How how has that been for you? But then also, what's the what does the future hold? Yeah, so so I have a really interesting perspective on this. Right, most startup founders, especially here in Silicon Valley, and I say this with love in my heart, we've all drank the Kool Aid that says in biotech, like in tech, you might be able to bootstrap something, but like that just is zero percent possible in biotech. Right, the amount of money you need is you know hundreds of millions, not hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Right? So there's no bootstrapping a biotech. Like you need big dollars. And we've all drank the Kool-Aid that says that the only way to get that money is to go talk to venture capitalists, go talk to VCs. But you could talk to different classes of VCs. There's tech, tech bio, biotech, 
right? There's corporate strategics, these types of things, but like you have to go get VC dollars. That's the only way to raise money for your company. And we did that as well, right? That was our seed. Our, our seed was led by Founders Fund and Lux Capital. So, you know, big classic marquee kind of, you know, tech and tech bio investors, these types of things. But one of the things we realized in 2023, when we were also out fundraising and not able to get a lead term sheet, you know, just like everybody else, is that there's another, there's another pool of money. And this is where I think we have a secret superpower having a, a former professor as a CEO, yes. um, you know, rather than a, a professional CEO, is that I know about a whole nother secret world of money out there. And it's a lot of money. It's called grants. Yes. <laughs> like that's all you do as a professor. You yeah. are a professional grant writer. And so we buckled down early on in 2023. I think we ended up writing something like 20 grants last year. We were averaging a grant submission every two to three weeks. These are 100 to 200 yes. page grant submission. Like these are gnarly. And we were averaging a submission every two to three weeks. I mean, I just went into, I'm from Seattle. I like Marshawn Lynch. Like we went into beach mode and we just started writing grants. <laughs> like, uh, like it was, you know, it was the end of days yes. and it already paid off. We already got one really big one. So from the state of California, there's the California Institute for Generative Medicine grant, which is a $4 million grant for translational work. And then that puts you in line for three other grants, basically in the next two to three years for another 27 million. And it's all non-dilutive, which, right. you know, even folks who aren't in the grant world know what that world means, what that word means, right? <laughs> non-dilutive, which is great for your current investors, your future investors, your employees, everyone just gets to, to keep what they have and not dilute as you bring in more funds. And so we just kind of went beast mode last year and wrote grants and are continuing to do so this year. We've got like eight grants about to read out in the next like two months. So fingers crossed, oh, there's about to be some more. That's the one problem is that the, the lead time is fairly long. You, you write a grant, you submit it. It might be a year until you find out if you want it and you get the funds. So it's if you're going out of business in two months, don't write a grant. <laughs> Too late. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you need to have like a year of runway and get started. But there's a whole nother world out there of grant monies that, that folks can apply for, both at the state level, the federal level, the local level, from disease foundations, all kinds of things. And so we're using both our seed funds from back in 2021, as well as all these grant funds to, to move us into 2024. And for us, this is the year we do our big push to the clinic. So the plan is to be dosing the first patient in hopefully Q1 of 2025. And so this year is our GMP vector productions, our IND enabling animal experiments, and then IND submission, hopefully by the end of the year, so we can get the trial site open first thing, Amazing. First thing next year. So that's super up. exciting. What is the first patient population that you're going to go after? Have you picked it yet? We haven't announced that yet. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll have a, <laughs> we'll fo we'll have a follow up when you pick it. In May. We'll probably announce it in May. Yeah, so. Amazing. I was wondering, as, as we close out here, you're, I've interviewed a lot of people on this podcast who have made the switch at one point from academia to industry, but you made it very recently. And obviously, times have changed and you have a pretty unique perspective. So I'm wondering, are there are there things that you were hearing about life in the industry side while you were an academic that you say now, yeah, actually that's spot on. The myths are true or the the rumors are true or and are on the flip side, are there any others that you actually say, you know, grant writing is grant writing. No matter where you are, you can write grants in industry is maybe one yeah. of them. People assume that grant writing hell is only reserved for the academics, but you can put yourself in that uh, hell as the industry hell, if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say one of the biggest conceptions that's true right? Is that the pace is much faster. And hopefully you would like that, right? So that was one of the things that I actually disliked about academia was just how slow it was. Because you get saddled with so much service to the university and sitting on so many committees and all of this stuff. And the nice thing about being out in the industry is that like, there's just none of that. There's just none of it. 
there's no thesis committee. There's no department committees. There's no subcommittee. There's no committee of committees. I mean, like we had one of those at UCSF. It's like, ah, all right. So you just don't have all of that bureaucratic nonsense. It's just like brass tacks. Let's get to work. I think one of the misconceptions that academics have is that their job is hard. And I say that with love in my heart as a former professor who thought their job was hard. Y'all have the cushiest, sweetest gig. It's so not hard. It's so not stressful. I know you think it's hard. I know you feel like it's stressful. It can, it doesn't just double. It's like 10x harder, at least in the CEO role. I can't speak about any other roles. I, I don't know any other. Yeah, I wonder if that would be and true if you. A very different role than being a professor. Yeah. If you took a scientist role at a large pharmaceutical that company, might I wonder. Yeah, I that know. might probably be very similar. But professor to CEO, CEO is, is a 10 times harder gig. But one of the sweet things that I love about being CEO and that I would never want to go back to being a professor is when you're a professor here in the US, right? Almost everybody, everybody, if you're in the life sciences, right? Your lab is funded with NIH dollars, right? So you're out writing R01s and UO1s and R21s and all the grants. And that sets a cap on what you can pay people in your lab, right? You can pay whatever, a grad student, 38,000, and maybe a postdoc, uh, right. what state you're in, you know, maybe it's 49 to 51,000. And it, they, they set that cap and your university won't let you go over that cap because you can't, even if you have the money to pay one of your trainees more than that, you can't pay your trainees more than someone else's trainees because that's not considered fair. You have to have this equity across the program. And, you know, and we're here in San Francisco, you know, a $38,000 salary it's not enough to to eat, much less live, much less, you know, you know, have have some funds. When to... they could make 10 times that much at Google. Yeah. Well. And what was so amazing to me about the switch that I hadn't really expected and planned for was taking someone who literally the week before was making 38,000, moving them over to that exact same role, but over an industry where we might pay them 120 and like nothing changed. They're the same person doing the same type of work. Yeah. A week went by and now all of a sudden you just like three or four X their salary and they say the sweetest things. They're like, oh, like no one's like, I'm going to go lease the Porsche. You know, <laughs> everyone's like, oh my gosh, I can buy like some healthy food. Right. I buy, yeah. And like, I, I can, buy blueberries now. I can, and I don't think I can about it. Dentist. And like, you know, I can, my mom needs a repair on her car and I was able to, to get the car repaired for her. And, you know, my dog needs a hip replacement. And I got my dog the hair replacement. So they just say like the sweetest things that yeah. they use the money for. And it's like nothing crazy. It's just normal life stuff that they finally have the money to be able to do. And that was probably like my most favorite part about the switch that I wasn't expecting. I was hearing all the sweet things that people did with their salary when they moved from academia to industry. So that's the little heartwarming thing I keep right here. Yeah, amazing. Uh, <laughs> Well, it sounds like you've made an enormous amount of progress and you've got a very important year ahead. This was one of the most entertaining conversations I've had. You're uh, you're a very natural science communicator. I think your company is amazing. And I've learned a lot about AVs and and what could be the future, I think, of, of how cancer is treated. <laughs> so I'm really excited for you and excited to watch your journey. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. All right. As always, thanks everyone for listening. If you really like the podcast, the thing that you could really do, which would make both mine and Nicole's day would be to share it with a friend, somebody you think would like it, share it on social media if you're really inclined to that sort of thing. And as always, we really welcome your feedback. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time.